0: Welcome to Readers, the podcast for the lifelong learner. Join us on our weekly Dose of Wisdom, where we talk about the real-life lessons and applications of books. Enjoy! Welcome back to Readers. It's been a long time, but we are back now. I promise to be more regular this time. Honestly, I don't know how many people this podcast has touched, but it's been such an incredible gift for me. I've learned so much from books by talking about them and reflecting with the incredible guests I've had the pleasure of working with. Speaking of guests today, I have Mr. Anand Gandhi joining me as a guest on this pod. Welcome to the podcast, Mr. Gandhi. Hey, Perutu.
1: Thanks for having me. Appreciate the opportunity and excited to talk about something that has uh, really made me excited to start off the year. Um, by way of quick introduction, um, I'm a corporate attorney professionally, uh, but also a father, a husband, a DEI advocate, and an aspiring writer. And I'm uh, working on my own journey to
0: unlock my potential. So um, uh, this, this book has uh, really resonated with me. Absolutely. Thank you for being here. Uh, and thank you, everybody, for tuning in. Today, we are going to be discussing a book by one of my personally favorite authors of all time, Adam Grant. His book, Hidden Potential, published in October of 2023, is one of the current newest and most chart-topping books right now. In this book, Grant discusses the science behind achieving greater things, speeding up progression, strengthening your shortcomings, and the building blocks to achieve effectively. So without further ado, let's dive into Chapter 1, Creatures of Discomfort.
1: Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Let's jump in.
0: So one of the trends I've kind of noticed in these recent uh, self-help books is that they all kind of tend to tell a story while they try to prove a point. Um, and I think I've really enjoyed it. It helps the point come across much better. And so this book is no different. It starts out with a story of Sarah Maria, who is a polyglot who can speak five languages fluently and conversationally in four others. Through one of her trips, she met a man named Benny Lewis, an Irish engineer who can speak six languages fluently and prof- has proficiency in four others. So, I mean, this is amazing, right? Like being able to speak nine different languages is not exactly a very common thing to find. Um, and a lot of us think that these are just people who kind of have an ability or who are just born with it. Um but that's, that's really not true. So Adam Grant kind of talks a little bit about what they have that's not just the language gene, but um, they what they did to speed up their learning. Yeah, you know, I found this
1: whole part very surprising because I think we're always told that, you know, whatever you learn as a child, that's what you're going to learn. And then the brain's not able to learn as quickly and you won't be able to pick up language. And I thought... You know, Adam Grant flips all that upside down and throws that out the window because he explains that really the difference, what changes between being a child and adult is the fact that as adults, we avoid being uncomfortable, we're, we're afraid of failing, and we're afraid of being judged. And so we just don't do things that are uncomfortable, whereas kids don't do that, right? They, they when they're walking, they wobble all over, they fall, people stare at them, but they're not phased by those things. Um, and I, I see that all the time at home with, with my kids. You know, they'll, they'll say something and it makes very little sense, but they just keep talking like they're good with it. And I think that's why they continue to grow and learn. And that's the secret. It's that being uncomfortable. And, and he kind of really points it out well with this example of language learning. Um, if you want to learn a language, you just got to go have hard conversations and you're going to sound really dumb and say things that don't make sense. But through that process, you're going to expedite your process of learning. And and that's what these polyglots master. They're not mentally that different. They're just willing to be uncomfortable.
0: Yeah, for sure. I mean, just giving an example from my own life, right? I learned um, Sanskrit, um, which is a language, and I learned it for six years. Uh, I don't really think I was ever uncomfortable while learning it, right? You just learn the basic grammar, you go to class every week. And even after six years, I didn't, I don't think I know it so well. Um, and I think Benny and Sarah Maria share that same thing. Benny couldn't speak Irish after he studied for 11 years. He couldn't speak German after five years, and he moved to Spain after college, and he still didn't learn it. Um, So a lot of people think they kind of missed that age window to learn a new language and other things. They're not born with that language gene, but this is false. So you kind of touched on this with being uncomfortable, throwing yourself out there. Um, And Grant talks about this as well, that they overcame a motivational hurdle. They got comfortable being uncomfortable. So he says that the best way to accelerate growth is to embrace, seek, and amplifying discomfort. And that's kind of interesting, right? Usually when you're trying to learn something, you don't seek discomfort. You're trying to be comfortable with learning something, right? And that's that's kind of how we look at it. But Grant kind of flips that around and says that it's about seeking discomfort. So Mr. Gandhi, when was the last time you did something uncomfortable why did you do it and you know how did that kind of affect you and how did it really turn out so so i'm definitely one of
1: those people who tries to avoid uh doing things that are uncomfortable i'm I'm definitely a victim of that and so um it doesn't happen too often but you know uh, one actually example that happened a few years back and i think that's kind of like led to this comfort which is probably a false sense of confidence but um a few years ago, my wife, Avni, was, has been telling me, like, let's do house projects, let's do house projects. And I always avoid that because growing up, I never touched power tools. I don't feel comfortable uh-huh. doing things. We always call someone, hire someone to do it. So we ended up doing our um, some some woodwork in our bedroom and we, we just dove in. Um, I used a nail gun. I used tools that I've never used. And out of that, like, I gained a whole sense of confidence. It was one project. And now I'm like, oh, yeah, nail gun. Like, let's do it. Like, I know how to find a stud. Yeah. I know how to do all these things, which I, I learned only doing one project. And it wasn't that I didn't know how to use those tools. I think I'd seen people do it long enough. I was just uncomfortable of failing. Like, I didn't want to make a mistake yeah. and then have it look ugly. So I never did it. Um, I can't say I'm good at it, but it's crazy. Just like one, one opportunity to do something and be uncomfortable. And when you feel that success, you're like, oh, I could do this. And that confidence is... Um, really unlocks like your ability to be like, yeah, I'll I'll give it a shot. Since then, I've tried like I'll watch a YouTube video and try little things around the house, which I never did before. And um, it's cool to see that.
0: Yeah, no, for sure. And um, Grant actually says that this problem of not seeking discomfort is not something we're just born with as people. He says, this problem has actually been amplified by the American school system, which is a really interesting point to me. I didn't expect that um, to come up. He said for so he goes back A long time ago that for a long time, schools were basically like factories. He says every student was treated the same, standard education for all, right? Um, But people realized this doesn't really work. Um, And by the 1970s, people discovered learning styles, uh, visual, auditory, kinesthetic, and they learned, they they felt like visual learners learn by watching, auditory learners learn by listening, kinesthetic Learners learn by moving their bodies and learning in that way. But Adam Grant makes a really bold statement here. And he says that learning styles are myths. No evidence that learning styles affect growth, scores, progress, or anything else. And he says, and he explains why. He says, learning styles equal comfort, right? And comfort equals limited growth. Now, I think he was pretty straightforward here, right? When you learn in the way you're comfortable learning, you are probably not pushed to learn another learning style, right? You're not pushed out of your comfort zone. You're right where you want to be. And that's the last thing you want in, an, in a quality education, right? Yeah, so, I,
1: I, I think one thing I remember growing up in yeah. school, you always, you were always like, they, had, they did these exercises to help you identify like, well, how is it, what's your learning style? And, and teachers were encouraged to be like, oh, like if you're a kinesthetic learner or even they would tell you like at home, then use, learn in that way. So if you need to memorize for a test, you know, if you're a visual learner, make note cards. If you're uh you know, auditory learner, like say it repeatedly and, and listen to it, make a recording. Um, yeah. And here, what he really says is like, that was actually like learning in the way, only in the way that you're comfortable is actually detrimental, right? It's, it's, it's a not yeah. productive. It's more productive to learn in a way that you're uncomfortable in because that's going to stick with you. And if you think about it, that's kind of true, like just from our regular experiences. And yet, you know, what teachers were telling us in school growing up was was exactly the opposite.
0: Yeah. And he says this all kind of ties back to courage, right? Embracing what makes you feel uncomfortable, working harder to learn something new. And he gives another example of the famous comedian Steve Martin. Uh, As many do, he was failing at the beginning of his comedy career, getting heckled. He was working hard. Um, but he was just not really succeeding. And his problem was that he was uncomfortable with writing, right? It wasn't his style. He liked to shoot off the hip. He liked to, you know, just make things up on the spot. Um, so he would procrastinate, he would put it off. Um, and Mr. Grant brings up another quite interesting point here. He says, people think that procrastination is laziness. But in reality, procrastination is just emotion managed is just an emotion management problem. He says that procrastination is just avoiding unpleasant feelings that an activity stirs up. But while doing that, you're also avoiding where you want to go. Right. Uh, giving you an example from my own life. Right. Uh, I play basketball. Uh, one of every basketball player's least favorite parts of practice is conditioning. Right. The running for 10, 20 minutes before practice and coach yelling at you every time somebody slows down starting over if somebody else stops and you know that kind of thing obviously um you know and i would i was somebody who would try to avoid that as much as possible right but you know at one point you kind of realize you got to do this if i want to get better and that's the same thing that happened to steve martin he realized he needed to write to become more successful at comedy um and that's why they they kind of tell this story of him a variety show took a chance on him he, he really just, he wasn't good at writing for a long time. He kept doing it. But what he didn't know is that writing really helped him become a better comedian in the future. It helped him trim the fat from his jokes. And he said that that's what made, that's what took out the essence of the joke and actually made it funny. So the author says that embracing such discomfort helped him turn into one of the biggest comedians in America and even helped him grow to love writing. And, um, I'll give you guys another example here, um, and that's with the gym, right? Uh, I wasn't exactly – nobody really is born just loving the gym the first time they go. It's difficult. You're not exactly in the best shape. Um, and after I did it for a year, it it got a little bit easier, right? I, I learned to have processes that made me enjoy it. I got to see people that I wanted to see. And even the process of actually working out, I grew more familiar with and after doing something that originally made me uncomfortable, I actually began to enjoy it after a year. Yeah, I can
1: totally, you know, resonate with that experience. And I think that's very similar to my own strength training journey. Like I'm a small guy, I don't lift a lot of weights. And so, you know, a big part of um, being able to get stronger is you got to start wherever you are and then work your way up. And but when you walk into the gym and everyone's like got big dumbbells and they're throwing around all this weight and you're this small guy and you're curling next to a a old woman who's got like double the weight you feel really embarrassed and I think a big part of it is like just learning to embrace that and be like you know what I'm uncomfortable I'm embarrassed and I'm clearly not as strong as most people here but if I don't start here I'm not going to make it up anywhere and I think once you get past that then you're like okay well I'm just going to be me and enjoy and I think um, that's a huge it's a huge thing and obviously again ties in just to this idea of you just got to learn to be uncomfortable if you want to grow. And and that's uh, I really like the way he's explained that.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. And and that's why he kind of talks about that. That's where he kind of goes back to the learning style idea. He says, you know, just because you're comfortable with it doesn't mean it's the best way to grow. And instead of finding the right learning style for the person, you should try to find it for the task. Uh, and he gives a couple of examples of how you know, reading impre- improves comprehension, recall, analytical processing, whereas listening involves intuitive thinking, right? So you should kind of go into which process, which style works better for which task. Yeah, um, you know,
1: when he the, kind yeah. of along with being uncomfortable and he goes into this as well, which I think is it's such a valid point. One of the biggest things that makes us uncomfortable is is feedback, right? Like when we get negative mm-hmm. feedback, that makes us uncomfortable um and and what he talks about um when he talks about kind of criticism and advice and uh critique all of that he kind of talks about that at great length and says that you know the first we're often too uncomfortable listening to feedback that people are giving us and and so that we don't grow from that um but but then secondly he really talks about like what kind of feedback do we want um and I think that really hit home for me like he talks about how when we're asking for feedback, we're asking the wrong question, you know, and so we get terrible responses. For example, you ask, how did it go? What did you think of it? And so people give you open-ended answers. And instead you're asking, instead of seeking feedback, he says, why don't you talk about asking for advice? When you ask for feedback, people talk about how well you did last time. And that's not really that helpful. Whereas if you ask for advice, it's like, what can I do better next time? Um, And so, in order to nudge people towards kind of future-looking statements, he you know, like instead of saying "How did it go?" maybe ask well, "What's one thing I could do better next time?" and that way you're asking someone for specific and giving them a question that they can answer in a way that's helpful to you. Um, and then the second thing that he talks about that resonated with me on this as well, and this is kind of a personal thing, is like you we distinguish we politeness and kindness, right? Like we we confuse the two, and mm-hmm. we think we think of them as being one and the same. Um, yeah. But, being polite is when you withhold feedback to make someone feel good. And then we do a lot of that, right? Like if someone says like, Oh, how's my hair look today? You're not going to say it's like, you're just going to say it's nice. (laughs) It's a polite thing to do, but being kind is being candid about how they can get better tomorrow. Right. And so I think um, sometimes we confuse the two and we want people to just be polite all the time. Um, But that stunts our growth. And, and, and when we, what we really need is people to be kind and and give us that uh, candid feedback. But I think, on, on the flip side, people are only going to do that when you're comfortable hearing it and not getting yeah. defensive or not, you know, closing your mind to it. And so I think it's uh, it's an important thing. And I, I really like how he talks about that.
0: Yeah, and that's a perfect segue, actually, into chapter two, which is all about being a sponge. He gives the example of Melody Hobson, who is basically the embodiment of a human sponge, right? She grew up one of six kids to a single mother in Chicago, very stressful childhood, but today is co-CEO of Ariel Investments. She's the chairwoman of Starbucks, and she's one of Times 100 most influential people. So her success is due, Grant talks about how her success is due to a couple of things. One is her work ethic, right? Um, And, you know, he gives a couple of examples about just grinding through what might have been difficult, embracing that discomfort. But he also talks about that feedback part of it. You know, she had uh, when she was younger, she had a burning desire to learn what she did not know. And so she would meet a man named John Rogers, who was a founder of a large minority owned investment firm. And he would she would meet him on Saturdays to learn about the stock market. She had what Grant calls absorbative capacity which is the ability to recognize, value, assimilate, and apply information. And he kind of dives a little bit deeper into absorptive capacity here. He says it's based on two habits. One is how you acquire information. Do you, are you proactive? Do you seek out new knowledge besides what comes into your field of vision? And the second is your goal you're pursuing when you acquire that information. Are you feeding your ego or are you fueling growth? And then he goes back to that point that you were just talking about about feedback, that true learning happens when we are able to really listen to other people, when we are able to take criticism positively and use it as input to improve. Yeah,
1: you know, one thing he also talks about is like this distinction between, um, you know, in terms of whose feedback do you want to take, right? That's the other thing. that Sometimes we take feedback from a lot of different people um, and and I think he, he has this like graph that he provides with these concentric circles of care, familiarity and credibility, right? So yeah. you, you need the right mix of all three, you need someone who cares about you, and wants what's best for you. You mm-hmm. also want someone who's familiar and knows you, because sometimes if we get feedback from someone who doesn't know you, uh, it might not be applicable to you, or, or it might, they might not be trying to help you if they don't care about you. And yeah. so And then last is credibility. You also want something from an expert, like me asking my son for feedback about something. It's (laughs) not very helpful. He's not credible. And so that that sweet spot in the middle of care, familiarity and credibility, Mm -hmm. that's something really important that I think we lose sight of sometimes because we're asking for feedback from people wherever we find them. And while that might be helpful, if we kind of hone in on those three, I think it could become much more amplified. And having a few people like that in your life who can um do that is is i think huge key to success like having a few good friends of um who are credible as well not just friends yeah. uh it's really important
0: no absolutely and so he introduces three different types of people here right he says and and like you just talked about which sources to trust right the people who have care who have credibility and who know you well um and the sweet spot is between those three and he says there's three different types of people who might you know, give you feedback or who are trying to uh, give you criticism. The first is, well, a critic, right? This is the person who sees your weaknesses, attacks your worst self. That's what he says. The second is a cheerleader, someone who sees your strengths and celebrates you. And the third is the sweet spot, right? A coach who sees potential and helps you improve, right? And I thought that was really, really interesting, right? Because when you when you take feedback, you have to consider where it's coming from, and that's not really something. At least I've never thought about that before, right? Of how much it matters where uh, feedback comes from. Um, and it, he brings up that really interesting point, point. Um, and that's he he says that's one of the keys to being a real a good sponge is deciding which information to absorb and not, and. Then he kind of closes this chapter out with another interesting point. He says that sponges should not only absorb, but also exert, right? Being a good sponge is not just somebody who takes, 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 but also somebody who can give, help, challenge others and pass that on. Going back to the example of Melody Hobson, Adam Grant says she's always the person who will give him real good, best feedback that he will get. You know, he said he gives an example of speaking at an event that she was at. And he knew that everyone would just say, good talk, good talk. And instead of just all of that fluff, she gave him real feedback to help him improve in the next one. And so he says that being a sponge is not only about soaking up, but also about releasing to help others grow. Should we jump into the next chapter? Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. Uh, chapter three, the imp- the imperfectionists.
1: So this one, this one, uh, I'll, I'll just, I also I think this chapter really resonated uh, as a lawyer because mm-hmm. you know one of the things we get paid a lot of money to do and and we get trained very heavily on, especially when you're at a big law firm, is to have everything perfect. I mean, yeah. as a junior attorney, I spent hours making sure every page, the line alignment was properly is it justified versus right uh, justified? Right. You know, do, are there two spaces after every period? Um, any straight commas, all these little details you do and, and attention to detail is that everyone says like that's the trait of the most successful junior attorney. And I understand why, right? Because if you can pay attention to the details when you're starting out, you're going to make sure you capture the big things and you're going to earn the trust of your clients. With that said, having been on the other side where you're hiring law firms, you know, you realize like, hey, you're billing me thousands and thousands of dollars on all these little details. Um mm-hmm. And are those imperfections we can live with, right? Like at the end of the day, what matters is the big picture items, the things that will impact my business, impact my transaction. And uh, lawyers sometimes get really bogged down by the little details. They'll, They'll spend hours negotiating little provisions that really don't have major, that don't have major impact. And so, you know, I know a lot of my fellow lawyers will probably disagree with me on this, but I think that chasing, chasing perfectionism actually makes you a less successful business attorney. Um, When you're supporting corporations, they want someone who is okay with living with some imperfections. And I love that this chapter talks about that, that if you wanna unlock your potential, you have to learn to live with some imperfections and the world's best, he gives some tremendous examples, but some of the world's best, uh, most successful architects and other people are people who learn to live with imperfections and and i think that um yeah that as a, as a professional in the space uh, uh it's really resonated
0: some of those examples that he gives i agree i mean they were they were really cool um one of those is he talks about a man named tadao ando a man who grew up in japan in the 1940s he wasn't able to afford he was living in poverty so he wasn't able to afford college so he did odd jobs he would borrow books from friends he would draw buildings and Eventually, he studied enough to get himself a license. Um, So he talks about I'm sure many of you guys have heard of the great hunching earthquake, um, which happened in the city of Kobe. Um, And he had built dozens of buildings in that city on an active fault line. So after this earthquake happened, he went to survey the damage um, and he was just devastated. Right. Because he thought all of his buildings would have fallen down. And he realized not one of his 35 buildings even had one crack in it. Isn't that is, not that crazy? Not a single. Yeah, that's that's crazy. And I, so, I want to
1: go see. I, I after after I read that, I was like, yeah. I'm gonna look up some of his buildings. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Are phenomenal. I definitely want to go see one. There's actually one here in the Dallas area in the DFW. Is there There's really? There's something in Fort Worth that he did. Um, I forgot what it is. I think I want to say it's like a museum of some sort. So uh, oh, if I go, I'll, I'll let you know.
0: No, for sure. For sure. But so he talks about how today Ando is the only architect to ever win all four of the field's most prestigious prices. And he says uh, that Ando is great because he has let go of the illusion of perfection. So he knows what to prioritize and when to settle. Um, and Adam Grant says that the more you grow, the better you know which flaws are acceptable. So that was really cool. You know, um, you just talked about a little bit about how um, being a lawyer and which flaws are acceptable in being a lawyer, right? Like, will it really change so much if you have two spaces, right, on accident? Um, And I think that's, that's very valuable in, in all fields, right? Even being a student, like a high schooler that I am now, right? What's, what's the most important thing to prioritize? Am I, is it more important to make sure I get that, right test score or is it more important to make sure I'm really learning from what I'm what I'm doing so uh Grant talks about not ever lowering your standards right to settle for those inadequate results right when we say perfectionism is um needed that sorry when when we say that perfectionism is what we should strive for that's what he doesn't want us to do because it's a goal that's impossible he says, perfectionism lowers your self-esteem every time you do something that is not impeccable, a trait that eventually hurts more than it helps.
1: Yeah, I, I have to jump in here. I mean, I love this part when we talked about what straight A students get wrong. So I, I, I'm i a straight A student. Um, I was valedictorian on top of my class, killed mm-hmm. every standardized test, you know, got A's in college and, and all of that, even in law school, top 10%. And, um man, when he started talking about it, and as I was reflecting, it's, it's perfect, right? Because I shouldn't say I shouldn't say the word perfect ironic here. But but he talks about how our whole education system is based on this idea of these perfect transcripts, and we chase these A's and high test scores. And yet, in the real world, that doesn't lead to translate to success. And that's because in the real world, there is no A to get there is no 100%. And, um, being a perfectionist and chasing that, you're chasing the wrong thing. And it doesn't drive and give you the skills that you need to deal with struggles or failures. And, and um, he says that when you're chasing these flawless results, you get three things wrong, right? The First is you're obsessing about details that don't matter. You're, you're missing the forest for the trees. Um, the second is that you avoid unfamiliar situations and difficult tasks that might lead to failure because you're so used to the success. Mm -hmm. Um, I think um, Malcolm Gladwell talks about this in one of his books as well, where he did this like meta study of like people who were valedictorians that, and how well they did at at college. um, Yeah. yeah, And outliers. There you go. And so, and and he, how a lot of the students at like the top Ivy league schools, the Ivy league schools are obviously collected. It's a collective of top students and yet Ivy league schools, you have people who drop out who fail. And it's because of this, right? Like they're now suddenly in this unfamiliar situation where they're amongst all these really smart people. When they fail, they can't handle that. Mm -hmm. Um, And then the third is like, you don't learn from mistakes because you're always mad at yourself when you make mistakes. And I think like, you know, this has been, I'm a victim of that. I feel like in many ways, I wasn't ready uh, because I had always gotten straight A's and everyone told me like, oh, you become a victim of this perfectionism and the straight A's. And um, it stunts yeah. your group in so many ways and I really like what he talks about here that I, I miss the boat on learning to live with imperfection and now that's something that I'm trying to grow with um, yeah. but it's been uh, it's been a rough journey
0: yeah I mean even Adam Grant gives a couple of examples of himself in that way right I mean he was also a straight A student he would if he placed second in some big competition he would get upset instead of being happy for himself right and he just he kind of talks about his own struggles a little bit, in that um, that brings up kind of. So I read about this a long time ago, and I had to re-research it just to just to kind of uh, jog my memory. Um, but there's this Japanese art of kintsugi. Um, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, but um, it's basically a process that puts broken pottery pieces back together. But instead of merging them with more pottery it merges them with gold. Um, I think this is just really cool. Uh, I don't know. It's, I thought it was amazing just because it highlights and puts beauty in imperfections, right? Would you rather have a normal, plain pottery piece or would you rather have one that, yeah, maybe it's a little jagged. Maybe it has some cuts here or there, but is lined with gold, right? It just increases the value tenfold. And, I thought that was amazing because, you know, they've just learned the value of imperfection and learning to see the beauty in that, because I mean, really nobody's perfect. Right. Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, yeah. I think
1: um, one thing about entrepreneurship as well, and that's something that I'm thinking about actively right now, mm-hmm. that what makes a successful entrepreneur is that they're willing to be imperfect. They're willing to fail and to get back up. And And anyone will tell you who's a successful entrepreneur. They failed many, many times and yeah. that, that, Failure is what led to their final eventual success. Mm-hmm. Um, someone like me who's so afraid of failure, you just never start something because you're you're too yeah. afraid to fail. So you kind of stay on a well-beaten, safe path. Um, and and that foregoes opportunities to grow. And that's not, I mean, there's it's obviously true in entrepreneurship, but it's true in so many areas of life. Yeah. Um so yeah, it's definitely something to think about.
0: Yeah. I mean, just that example you just gave, right? It's not the it's not the businesses that try to appeal to everybody, right, that end up succeeding. Because you can't ever find something that everybody might, you know, need or want. Um, But it's the ones who have a specific niche, who know what they're marketing for, and who pursue that, that actually end up succeeding. Um, But, you know, we've talked a lot about this um, being perfection and don't just strive for that, but, you know, set your own goals. But Adam Grant talks about... um, what to actually do, not just what not to do. Um, He says that the key is to set high standards that you can actually check off, right? As you you grow, as you get better, obviously your expectations will grow. But he says that the key is to make sure you set a certain high bar and keep achieving that instead of pursuing an ideal that's not possible. Um, And that's kind of what he talks about here um and an example you know from my own life right um again going back to the gym right it's the difference between maybe repping till failure which sometimes you could tend to slack off on right if you're having a bad day if you're just tired you know i don't i know i don't always end up getting it versus a high rep count right which to me personally it's always pushed me to maybe go two more than what i think i can do um yeah and he kind of finishes out the chapter here with a couple of last a couple of last thoughts um he says one expectations tend to rise with accomplishment right my expectations right of you know right now the stage i'm in getting to a good college may not be the same as yours mr gandhi right because you've already gone through that process your accomplishment is much much more because you've already gone through it um and then he says, excellence is not about meeting other people's expectations, but living up to yours. Um, this is an example that he kind of correlates with his story of being a diver in the past and getting scored on every dive, not living up to the judge's expectations and being a perfectionist. He would use, the, he it would shame him, right? And he wouldn't end up growing from it. Um, he talks about reflection a little bit. He says that Reflecting over time melts that shame and marks your growth. And being kind to yourself isn't about ignoring your weaknesses. It's about giving yourself permission to learn from your disappointments. I thought that was really cool
1: absolutely um and I think what we need ultimately like from what for what my takeaway was like what we need to do is accept that flaws are inevitable right we're yeah. we're gonna make mistakes and but they don't prevent life from being sublime like you can mm-hmm. be perfect with flaws and like he gives mm-hmm. plenty of examples and I think if we focus on life being perfectly acceptable versus perfect he makes that mm-hmm. distinction um and if we pursue high personal standards versus pursuing perfection, you can feel your growth. And yeah. what I think is we need to have grace for ourselves, embrace our shortcomings, don't punish ourselves for those. And then rather than waiting for everything to be perfect, he uses a yeah. quick example, right? Call he, We just need to build a minimum viable product and just start doing things. Um, that's what entrepreneurs do in the tech world. You don't wait till the product is perfect. You just make a minimum viable product and you get it out there and you keep iterating and improve it. And that's yeah. true in life. Whatever it is we want to do, just get out there, start doing it, and then it'll improve as you go.
0: Absolutely. So. Um, And he finishes out the chapter with one, you know, a line that I think it really resonates with me. He says, success is not how much how close you come to perfection as how much you overcome along the way. And I thought that was just that was really cool to me. Um, So, yeah, that that finishes the part one of Hidden Potential. We will be back with part two soon enough. Thank you so much for joining me, Mr. Gandhi. Thanks for having me.
1: And uh, yeah, look forward to the next uh, conversation.
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. And uh, thank you, everybody who tuned in. Don't stop learning. Don't stop growing and don't stop changing. Thank you, everybody. We'll see you next time.